Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we engage with texts that may be familiar to us, that you would give us fresh insights and understanding, and open up our hearts to receive from you that which you may have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we complete our six-week sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul continues to rejoice with the Christians at Philippi, and here in the final chapter, one of the reasons for his rejoicing is the generosity of the church in that place that has supported him financially. And today we're going to look at this theme of generous giving. Now, when the subject of financial giving comes up in church, I suspect that there may be a number of knee-jerk reactions that can occur. Some of you may be wishing you'd stayed away this morning. Others are thinking, how can I get to the door without anybody noticing? Or maybe you're the grin and bear it type, and you're thinking, well, it'll soon be over, a bit like the pledge drives on the radio. I came across two uh, stories about giving that I thought you might enjoy. The first is that told of a TV evangelist who had wires connected to the seats of his church. And uh, as he made his appeal for all those willing to give $100 to stand up, he pressed the button, uh, zapping their seats. And understandably, the whole congregation leapt to their feet. Well, I say all, all except two. Ushers later discovered two dead Scotsmen clinging to their pews. (laughs) Apologies if you're Scottish. I am a quarter Scot myself. Um, The other story concerns a clergyman looking out on his near-empty church as the offertory plate was being passed round. And as a couple of parishioners desperately scrabbled to find some loose change in their pockets... When the almost empty plates were brought up to the front, the minister took them, held them up, and prayed, Lord, we give you thanks for the safe return of these plates. (laughs) Well, we have a very different picture of giving portrayed here in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, writes St. Paul. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. And he praises God and them as he is so grateful for their generous support. And what is interesting and instructive for us in the verses that follow are what we learn about Paul's attitude towards money and towards giving. And I'm going to tackle three questions this morning about giving. Why? How, and the real kicker, how much? So, first, why should we give? In this final passage from Philippians, Paul gives us some great reasons why we should give. And there are three particular things that I'd like you to notice. First, giving brings blessing to others. Second, giving brings blessings to those who give. And third, giving brings blessing to God. So, first... Giving blesses others. Now, on the one hand, Paul is not that concerned about money. After all, he had learned to be content regardless of his circumstances. And as we've seen over recent weeks, um, 
the particular circumstances for Paul as he writes this letter are that he's under house arrest in Rome awaiting trial. But through his many and varied sufferings, he had learned the secret of contentment. Verse 12, I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty in any and all circumstances. I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. Oil magnate and philanthropist J.D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy? His answer, just a little bit more than he has. St. Paul, however, has learned to be content in all situations. Now, he's not saying there's anything wrong with having wealth, just that such cannot be the source of our contentment. So what is the secret? Well, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The point is that what ultimately counts are not the outer trappings of wealth or power or prestige, but the inner resources of strength and joy and contentment that come from God. Benjamin Franklin once said, content makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men poor. One only has to read the headlines of People magazine in the grocery store aisle to know that some of the wealthiest, most famous, most successful people on the planet are also very often among the most miserable, living lives that are marked by anything but contentment. But let's get back to our text. Paul, though content in all circumstances, was nevertheless facing material need. Verse 14, it was kind of you to share my distress. At a time when no other church was supporting Paul in his missionary endeavors, the Philippians did. Indeed, they helped him on a number of occasions. The generosity of the Christians in Philippi was a blessing to others, was a blessing to Paul. But Paul's primary concern for them is not so much that they bless him, but rather that they may be blessed. Specifically in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulated to your account. Paul wants them to understand that giving not only blesses others, but it also blesses those who give. So this is the second point. Giving brings blessing to those who give. If we look at this in commercial terms, Paul is saying that giving is an investment. And elsewhere, he uses the analogy of a farmer uh, reaping what has been sowed. The investment is sowing the seed, and then you reap the benefits of that. And Paul writes there that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You know, one of the joys of belonging to this parish is in seeing how the money that is given to God through the church is used. Clearly, it is important that what is given is invested wisely in our programs, in people, in buildings, and in supporting other needs and missions. What a blessing it is as a parish to be able to give money away and to share with others some of the bounty that we have received. 
Giving blesses others. Giving is a blessing to us. And thirdly, giving brings blessing to God. Paul is saying that a material gift to another person can be a spiritual gift to God. He speaks of the gifts he has received from them as being, in verse 18, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's an extraordinary way to talk about it. That's, that's how Paul talks elsewhere of Christ's offering of himself for us on the cross. It speaks of something very beautiful. It speaks of an act of great love. Now, let me be very clear. We cannot earn our salvation. We're not bribing God into anything. The sacrifice of Jesus that we remember and celebrate in the Eucharist this morning was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. We can't possibly add to that which is already full and complete. But as we say in the Eucharistic prayer, our sacrifice is one of thanks and praise. And part of that is demonstrated through our giving. You know, the overarching theme of this letter to the Philippians has been joy. And, and so far this morning, I've focused on the joy and the blessings. And that, I think, goes a long way to answering my first question of why give. But there's something else that needs to be said in answering the question, why give? For we are also to give out of obedience to God. You may recall last week, Josh Miller explained that the word rejoice means both a feeling of happiness and an act of praise. We give God praise, why? Because regardless of what we feel, it is right to give him thanks and praise. We give financially back to God out of all that he has entrusted to us. Why? Because it's a blessing to others, to ourselves, and to God, certainly, but also because it is right to give. It is both a joy and a duty. Now, there are many times in life when we may do the right thing out of duty, whether or not we feel like it. And the humbling thing is, when we do that which we ought to do, perhaps from less than stellar motives, we often find that the results of an act of love or obedience, of giving, of faithfulness or whatever, may be surprising and abundant good fruit and joy. And of course, there are many things in life that are both a duty and a joy. Take marriage. When a person gets married, they immediately take on a whole series of new responsibilities, new duties, new obligations. But in doing so, they also enter into what can and should be a very joyful relationship. Another example is in how we relate to God. Take our service of Holy Communion that we're in right now. In the, in the opening uh, responses at the Eucharistic prayer, I say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And you say, the celebrant then says, it is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you. And so the prayer continues. 
And in England, the liturgy at that point in the service goes like this. It is indeed right. It is our duty and our joy at all times and in all places to give thanks unto thee. We celebrate Holy Communion regularly because, A, Jesus told us to do that, hence it is our duty. And B, because it is something that is of such great benefit to us, bringing us joy, drawing us closer to God as we are reminded of all that he has done for us as we feed on him. And I believe that just as our giving thanks in communion is both our duty and our joy, so also our giving of money should be likewise. It is our duty because God tells us to give And it is our joy because of all the blessings that flow from giving. And that's one of the reasons why we have an opportunity to give each week in the context of our worship. We come before God offering ourselves, including our money, as a response to his goodness and because it is a good and joyful thing to do. Now, I want to be crystal clear this morning in how I answer this first question of why give. We give first and foremost as a response to who God is and what he has done for us. We give as our duty and our joy. And as we give, the joy of that giving is realized in so many ways. Okay, that's the first question. Now, Don't panic, I'm going to be a bit shorter addressing the second two, so stay with me. And the second of my opening questions was, how should we give? I mean, should we give until it hurts? Uh, Should we give what we can spare? Well, neither. In the Old Testament, we learn that God told the people of Israel to bring the first fruits of the harvest. And first fruits are special. They're the first, the best, the choicest. And when it comes to money, first fruits can never be what we have left over after we've used our money for everything else. We should give first to God and then pay the mortgage or the car loan or the bills or whatever. You know, I run a little kind of Excel spreadsheet for our family budget. And on the outgoing side of that spreadsheet, the very first line is my tithe. And there it is. And it reminds me every time I'm trying to manage the books, that's the first piece is given back to God. And I believe that when we are faithful in setting aside for God the first portion of our money, and by the way, this extends also to the first portion of our whole lives, then we are giving in the way that God asks us to give. Uh, St. Paul writing, uh, not now to the church at Philippi, but to the church at Corinth, said this, On the first day of each week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And there's three things that Paul's saying there. First, he's saying, be systematic. On the first day of the week, set money aside. There's nothing haphazard about that. And now today, that might mean for us setting up an automatic payment through the bank or or using uh, envelopes to bring or mail to the church each week or month. You know, the actual method isn't terribly important, but the principle of intentionality is very important. Second, Paul is saying, give in relation to your income. He doesn't say, uh, give in relation to the church budget. 
That's why this isn't fundraising. Give in relation to your income. Give proportionately. And third, he says, so that contributions need not be made when I come. Or in other words, so that we don't have to keep on passing the hat or having fundraisers. Now, I know that that isn't the way it's often done in our society. But, you know, if we gave in the way that God asks us to give, I doubt very much that we would ever need another fundraiser for anything ever again. So then, we're to give firstly to God, we're to be systematic in our giving, and we're to give in relation to our income. Okay, final question, the bottom line. How much, how much should we give? In our gospel reading, we encountered Jesus and the disciples, people watching, as I said to the children, watching the people go up to the temple. And they could see the people bringing their gifts of money. And many rich people put in large sums. But the one whom Jesus praised was this poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. And that just seems a bit odd. How could a couple of pennies be enough? But then, of course, Jesus tells us that the woman had given everything she had. But how much should we give? Well, the biblical norm, the the basic standard that we find is the tithe, 10% of our income. And sadly, I think there are some Christians who give to God rather haphazardly, almost as an afterthought, maybe a little bit like giving a tip in a restaurant. In fact, let's use that as an analogy. Suppose you and a friend go out for dinner, and the meal is a nice meal, and it costs uh, $50. I don't know your budget. That might be a really nice meal or a really terrible meal, but we'll use it as an example. And let's assume you have this great evening, and everything about the food is great, and the service is impeccable. The waiter is helpful and friendly, and he's, he's very attentive. And just as you're getting ready to leave, would you casually leave two quarters on the table as your tip? If you did, I think most would agree that that was not an adequate way of blessing the waiter. Surely your kind, friendly, helpful waiter deserved more than 1%. Actually, if you left two quarters, it would probably feel more of an insult than a blessing. When it comes to blessing others, being blessed ourselves, and blessing God, we don't want, surely, to be stingy tippers. Let us be joyful tithers. Now, bear with me if you've heard me say this before, but I think part of our problem is that we've got a couple of concepts mixed up. It seems that we've confused the concept of the tithe with the concept of the speed limit. Let me elaborate. Um, The speed limit, it seems, is no longer an upper boundary on the speed at which we drive. Rather, it is viewed as the minimum acceptable speed at which we should go. At least, it certainly seems that way every time I go on the turnpike. Uh, The tithe, on the other hand, has suffered in the opposite direction. Rather than being seen as the minimum level of giving that God desires, it's now treated as as an absolute upper boundary the maximum level of sacrifice that would ever be asked of us by God. 
And both of these are upside-down ways. And these upside-down ways are really the result, I would suggest, of our human selfishness. We want to get there faster and have more when we arrive. Maybe it's time to start keeping our driving speeds at or below the maximum and our giving at or above the minimum. It would certainly make our driving safer and our relationship with God stronger. And if you don't believe me, try it. Well, let me finish with where Paul starts and finishes his letter, which is with God's grace. I've no desire to stand here and place a burden on you or put you on some kind of a guilt trip. There are some here today who may not be giving what they would like to because they are not free to, either because of unwise financial decisions made in the past or perhaps, perhaps because a husband or wife are not on the same page about this or for some other reason. But my challenge to each and everyone here is simply this. Take a fresh look at this. And if necessary, make a fresh start as you consider the stewardship letter that I hope you received from me in the mail this week. And if you didn't, there are more at the back and there are pledge cards in the pews. But think about your commitment to God through ascension for the coming year. Maybe you have not been a generous giver. Maybe you have never tithed your income to God. And I would say this, begin where you are, trusting that God will bring you to where he wants you to be. If you've only been a 1% tipper, make a start on that road to being a 10% tither. Start to give in accordance with your income. Start to give God the first portion of your money and your time and your abilities. Give to God the first fruits of your whole life. And, you know, I think I say this almost every year, but it's still true. I still haven't met the ex-tither. Once you start doing this, you won't stop. You just won't. So I mean it when I say try it. And, and I'll give you another out. If, you, if you're willing to test God in this, risky thing to say, I know, but tithe, do it for six months, and if it doesn't work, then you're released from your commitment. This is serious stuff, and it is, it's not a burden. It's, it's such a joyful thing, and I, I, I don't know how to get that across to you, except that I know that this is true, and I found this true in my life. Let your giving be both a duty and a joy, a great joy. And above all, let us never fail to keep on giving thanks to God for his indescribable gift to us, the gift of his Son and the gift of eternal life. And as you do this, to quote the final verse from Philippians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.